X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, July 31st. Yesterday, back in the day, July 30th, 2020, John Lewis was laid to rest. The American hero who helped America draw a direct line from the civil rights movement to the current awakening. The one who reminds us that sometimes you have to get into some good trouble. And this, you have to find a way to get in the way. And this. Ours is not the struggle of one day, one week, or one year. Ours is not the struggle of one judicial appointment or presidential term. Ours is the struggle of a lifetime, or maybe even many lifetimes. And each one of us in every generation must do our part. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. Ed Johnson from the Oregon Law Center is with us to share the impact of a recent lawsuit against the city of Grants Pass on those who are living outside. And we continue our focus on the special election for City Council Position 2 with part two of my and DJ Ambush's interview with Loretta Smith. Ballots are due week after next, Tuesday, August 11th. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. The Washington Post reporting the Department of Homeland Security has compiled intelligence reports about the work of journalists, American journalists, covering protests in Portland, Oregon. Current and former officials are calling this an alarming use of a government system meant to share information about suspected terrorists and violent actors. The Homeland Security Office of Intelligence and Analysis sent out three open-source intelligence reports to law enforcement agencies and others summarizing tweets by journalists, report of the New York Times, including a reporter for The New York Times and editor-in-chief of the blog Lawfare. The intelligence reports noted that the journalists had published leaked, unclassified documents about DHS operations here in Portland. After the Post published a story online yesterday evening, the department instructed the intelligence office to stop collecting information on journalists and announced an investigation into the matter. Well, the Independent Police Review Board is heading to the ballot and has got teeth. There was a unanimous city council vote to refer the proposal for a new independent police review board out to the voters for a vote in November. According to the Lamont Week, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty and Mayor Ted Wheeler are back on speaking terms to offer voters the reform proposal. The new independent investigative agency will have power to subpoena documents, access police records, compel witness testimony, including compelling testimony from police officers, and imposing discipline on police officers. Funding for the proposal is set at up to 5% of the current police budget. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, a major advocate for this proposal. Loretta Smith, a candidate for city council. Again, the vote is happening right now, and your last day to turn your ballot is week after next. Has advocated for a similar approach. City Auditor Mary Hull Caballero tried to toss some water on the proposal. She took the rare step of having a press conference, the first she's ever had, to air her objections on the new agency. Among other things, she criticized the pace of the proposed change. It's moving too fast! She said the state legislature hadn't yet made sufficient changes. The police contract hadn't yet changed. This is the same auditor, by the way, who criticized the proposal for public campaign finance for having insufficient planning and going at too rapid a pace. Move it too fast. Commissioner Hardesty says this is not a new idea, but now there is greater urgency to get it done. What Mayor Wheeler had to say was, yes, it's a risk, but, and I am quoting, this question of police accountability is driving thousands of people into our streets each and every day. Your daily dose of data, 416 new cases in Oregon and five new deaths. We're now over 18,000 cases, three counties with the most. Umatilla with 101 new cases. Washington County with 63. Multnomah County were third this time, just 61. Three deaths in Multnomah County, two in Umatilla County. We've been in this state of emergency, by the way, due to the virus since March 8th, if you're keeping track. A reminder that children over the age of five must also wear masks. So far, 777 people between the ages of zero and nine have tested positive. 
Herman Cain, the right-wing denier of the dangers of COVID-19, succumbed to those dangers and passed away. Nothing funny about it, no schadenfreude, it's just sad. And a reminder that even if you don't believe in the coronavirus, the coronavirus can believe in you. In the news in the local economy, Nike has announced layoffs starting in October. 500 of those layoffs will happen to employees at the Nike World Headquarters in Beaverton, 192. 192 of those layoffs are because they're closing the World Headquarters Child Care Center. Nike is Oregon's largest corporation based here. They suffered a loss of $790 million as a result of the recent economic shutdown. Nike's new CEO, John Donahue, has plans to simplify the company's complex organization. That plan includes minimizing from sport-specific teams to three main departments, men's, women's, and kids. That seems kind of retrograde, doesn't it? Why is it, by the way, that men's and women's shoe sizes have to be different? If you haven't answered that question, email the local at xray.fm. Meanwhile, Wyden Kennedy, Nike's longtime advertising firm, has laid off 11% of its team. The agency credited with creating Nike's Just Do It campaign in the 80s is paying four-month severance to laid-off workers. All of this is in the context of yesterday learning that the last quarter was the biggest drop in GDP in recorded history in the United States. And in protest news, Oregon troopers arrived on Thursday at the downtown Portland Federal Courthouse. State police are now taking over to try to defuse the sometimes violent confrontations. And now there is a report that Portland protesters are claiming that tear gas is causing irregularities with menstruation. Protesters have experienced multiple periods in a month, sudden periods, debilitating cramps, blood clots the size of half a fist. Trans protesters who have stopped menstruating since they began taking testosterone have had their cycles start again. Currently, there is little evidence linking tear gas to changes in hormones, just anecdotes. In 2011, researchers in Chile raised concerns that tear gas had induced miscarriages, which led to the chemicals ban. Sven-Erik Jort, associate professor at Duke, suggests tear gas may affect hormonal homeostasis. Tear gas, or CS gas, has been a form of crowd control during protests which began May 25th. And there have been bills and proposals to ban it. Tear gas has now been banned from use by the Portland Police Bureau, except for in life-threatening situations. Mayor Wheeler has now apologized for the police bureau's excessive use of tear gas. Wheeler says his directive against the use of tear gas was the first time he got involved in police tactics. He also drew the distinction between the Portland Police Bureau and the federal officers who have used CS gas nightly in July. And in what I'll call arts and entertainment, Pickathon will be hosting live-streamed concerts this weekend. Pickathon was scheduled for July 30th to August 2nd on Pendarvis Farm, as it happens every year, but it was canceled, like so many other things, because of the coronavirus. Social gatherings in Clackamas County are currently limited to 50 people. That's a lot fewer than go to Pickathon. The weekend's virtual lineup includes Dan Deacon and Moon Duo. Since spring, Pickathon has been holding virtual concerts to collect donations for Music Cares COVID-19 Relief Fund. They've raised $200,000. The concerts can be streamed on Pickathon's YouTube channel. And a shout-out to Anya Anand, a 2020 graduate from Lincoln High School. Crowned the Portland Rose Festival queen on Thursday afternoon. She plans to attend University of California Davis to study psychology. Rose Festival's been doing this since 1922. That's 98 years. Is it going to go to 100? And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Ed Johnson, Director of Litigation at the Oregon Law Center, joins to discuss a recent win on a case against the city of Grants Pass and in support of the community living outside. In Grants Pass, Oregon, there are no year-round shelters to assist the city's homeless population. Instead, people sleeping outside get fines and violations from the local police. All that is about to change. Oregon Law Center has just won a lawsuit against the city, arguing that its treatment of its homeless population is unconstitutional. Ed Johnson, the director of litigation at the Oregon Law Center, is here to tell us more about this victory 
and what it means for Oregon's homeless going forward. Welcome back to the show, Ed. Hi, good to be here. How did this case come to you? Well, we have an office in Grants Pass, um, along with 19 other cities around Oregon, and uh, people started coming in to the office uh, and telling us that they were getting these really expensive tickets while they were sleeping um, in various places, in parks, not in parks. Um, and so we started doing some outreach to the unhoused community, and we learned that this was a pretty widespread uh, practice and that, in fact, Grants Pass had given out hundreds of these uh, tickets under three or four different ordinances over the last several years. And how was the city of Grants Pass dealing with homelessness before this lawsuit? Was it just tickets everywhere? Was there any other systemic approach to folks who are living uh, without a home? Well, I mean, like most smaller cities in Oregon, there's kind of the good and the bad. Mm. Um, you know, Gr Grants Pass uh, has a homeless, uh, homelessness task force and there are folks, certainly there's a community action group down there, you can, that's doing great work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are efforts to uh, address the, the causes of homelessness and to help people who are living outside. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, in around 2013, when the city and county were facing, you know, budget cuts uh, and there, the housing crisis was in full bloom, uh, there was also an effort by elected officials to basically drive people out of town. Mm. Um, and so uh, those two things were happening at once. And what was your argument against the city? How did you set this up? So um, we had three clients initially. Uh, we had a lot of clients, but we had three named plaintiffs. And we ended up uh, filing for a class certification. So. Mm -hmm. The court allowed us to represent a class, and the case became a class action where we represented all of the homeless people in Grants Pass, uh, and actually people around Grants Pass who had been driven out of the city by the police's enforcement tactics. Um, so that was our; those were our plaintiffs, um, and we um, essentially we had five or six legal arguments, but the one that um, has probably gotten the most attention is based on the uh, Martin v. Boise case out of Boise, Idaho, uh, which uses the Eighth Amendment to say if a person is living outside because there's nowhere else for them to live or get shelter, then the city can't punish them for that sort mm -hmm. of unavoidable, universal um, need to lie down or to sleep or to stay warm or to stay dry. Um, the unique thing about this case and this decision that came out last week is that it clarifies that that Boise case does not extend just to criminal punishment, but also to civil citations and civil fines. Ah. Wow. So what does, this, what does a case like this mean for Oregon's homeless population in the future? Well, I mean, that's a good question, right? Because lawyers, sometimes we celebrate victories and then there's like the victory on paper of what happens with case law and precedent and it never translates into anything useful for the people who need it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, this 
the court actually offers suggestions about what cities can do. There were there were some amicus briefs or briefs by friends of the court who were not part to, of the case, and one of them was by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. And you know, it suggests other routes that uh, that cities can take that are actually less expensive. Um, for example, not having the police be the front line first responders to homelessness seems to be a pretty universally accepted idea. Even the police don't want to do this. Mm. So if we can figure out a way to have social workers and people who are working in social services be the first responders to these problems, I mean, obviously they're not going to be handing out tickets and fines. Um, that might be a really great first are there any next steps that the Oregon Law Center is taking um, now with this particular case? So the city has a right to appeal to the Ninth Circuit, um, so the case may continue on. Um, but, you know, legal aid lawyers uh, are working on a variety of cases where people are being criminalized. You know, there are homeless camp sweeps. Um, there's also legislative work that takes place at the Oregon Law Center, and, I, and there, there's certainly um, a dovetail with the Black Lives Matter movement and the response to homeless communities. Um, I think one of the things that everybody is super worried about is what happens when this eviction moratorium ends uh, at the end of September if it's not extended. Other other states where the um, moratoriums have ended there's just been a, an eviction tsunami and um, that I think in tandem with the fact that we don't know exactly what the state of our economy is right now but it's probably not good um, is going to lead to more homeless people being visible in every community in Oregon and I think just being ready for that and having sort of a toolbox of options for municipalities that doesn't involve putting people in jail and arresting them and ticketing them and fining them for things they have no control over um, would be really good right now. And is that the role of the Oregon Law Center to, to move forward with some preparation um, for that kind of moment? Well, we represent clients mm -hmm. who have an interest in this, and sometimes we do it through litigation, but we also have a legislative advocacy team that you know, works down in Salem and does local um, legislative advocacy to try to encourage the state or municipalities to to adopt uh, policies that will help our clients. I mean, one of the things about homelessness is it was caused by bad policy. I mean, modern mm -hmm. homelessness started 30 years ago during the Reagan era, um, massive cuts around subsidized housing. And so it's pretty well accepted that good policy can unravel what has been wrought by bad policy and you know the the models of uh, housing first and permanent supportive housing have been proven to work they just are underfunded so it's a lack of will and so but there does seem to be a lot of momentum in Oregon at the state and local level in some some parts of Oregon to, to use those models to make sure that people have housing. I and mean, that's the only solution to homelessness. You know, stopping criminalization and building, uh, you know, mass congregate shelters does nothing to solve the problem of homelessness. The only thing that will do that is more affordable housing. Mm. 
And if folks aren't familiar with the Oregon Law Center, I know one of the things that you spoke about with Jefferson in, in that early April interview was eviction uh, support, especially in those early days of the eviction moratorium. What are some of the other services that the Oregon Law Center provides in case folks are unfamiliar? So um, Oregon Law Center and Legal Aid Services of Oregon, which are sister organizations, provide a wide range of civil legal services. So we're not the public defender, we don't do criminal work. Um, but we will help low-income communities and low-income individuals with any kind of civil cases, you know, subject to our capacity. Unfortunately, we have to say no to about 85% of the people that come to us, but we do housing and homelessness, which is my specialty. We do employment uh, rights work. We, do, we represent domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. We do a wide range of public benefits work, including um, you know, health law and unemployment benefits. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, between LASSO and OLC, we have um, 19 offices around the state. And Ed, where can folks find out more information about the work of the Oregon Law Center? Our website is OregonLawHelp.org. And um, you can find out about the LASSO and or the OLC uh, office in your community by going to that website. Excellent. Ed, thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking about this uh, new, new result in Grants Pass. Thank you very much. That was Ed Johnson, Director of Litigation at the Oregon Law Center. X-ray. In less than two weeks, on August 11th, ballots are due for City Council Position 2 in the City of Portland. In this runoff, Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan are asking for your vote. We continue our focus on this special election with part two of our interview with Loretta Smith. You can find the full hour-long interviews with each candidate available on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Here is part two of DJ Ambush and Jefferson Smith's interview with Loretta Smith discussing local protests and police reform. On August 11th, ballots are due for City Council Position 2 in Portland. In this runoff, Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan are asking for your vote. Today we have Loretta Smith with us to discuss her vision for the role and city of Portland. I put a call out to a couple of people uh, last week and I said, I want to meet with the protesters and I want to meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. They said, meet us at Irving Park. We stood there for two hours, talked in a circle. Many of the folks were men and they talked about what they wanted and it was still clear, defund the police, get the feds out of here and figure out how to um, put resources into the community. So I knew I was on the right track. You can't be afraid to talk to these folks. And I just don't think that my opponent um, is, is capable of doing that right now without having others in the room. This is the problem why they're protesting because they never get an audience themselves. They never get people in power and to speak truth to power. And they were excited and they were happy that I was there listening to them, just listening. So. I can definitely attest to you not being afraid to have those conversations. Uh, shout out to Donovan Smith. He's a contributor uh, for the numbers. I saw some footage, I believe it was from either Sunday or Monday night when you took the stage 
uh, I think it was on the back of the back of the pickup truck to um to to to, to talk to some protesters. Yeah, um, and it was their idea. I had talked to them early that morning, that Sunday morning at Irving, and so they said, "Well, we going out. You gonna come?" And we want you to speak your truth. You're a black mom. I said, well, you know what? I said, I looked at um, John Lewis's body being carried over the Edmund Pettus Bridge this morning to um, Mm -hmm. acknowledge his presence and what he did for us to to give us the opportunity to vote. I said, today is the day. This is the 60th day. And I have something to say. I have something to say from a black mom's perspective. I, I love what the wall of moms were doing. I love what the, the wall of veterans were doing, but I just felt like, there was no black voices down there. People were chanting Black Lives Matter, but they weren't coming from black voices. And I wanted to lend my voice. And I wanted my, my son and my grandkids to see that, yes, your grandmother is not afraid. And it doesn't matter. You can speak your peace and we can have social justice and we, and we can have it in a peaceful way. And, and I have to tell you, people were peaceful down there. Right. It's what happens after 11 o'clock that's a whole different animal of what goes on down there. But people were peaceful. They were listening. They were chanting. You know, it was inspiring. And, and then I looked in the park where a lot of folks who are houseless, they sleep prior to COVID, prior to protesting. They, they haven't moved. But because of all the people that have come down there, they have organized food for the uh, folks who are houseless. They have something to drink. And it's, it's almost like a party atmosphere. But then, then you have this, this backdrop of George Floyd. And so I got up on there to say, today, you're going to hear from a black mom. Right. Today, you're going to hear from someone who raised a black son in this community. And I will be the first black mother on that city council and the second African, African-American woman on that council. And I think my voice is needed. Um, my level of consciousness about stuff. I know what it means to be a renter. I know what it means to raise a black man alone. I know some of the circumstances around social um, interactions that are acceptable and not acceptable. And I know what it's like to be a professional with a kid and have to take them to daycare and then go to work and then work till 10, 11 o'clock at night for an elected official. I know what that looks like. I had a lot of help from my family. Um, If I didn't have my family here, I wouldn't have been able to do that job with Senator Wyden for 21 years. Uh, I think Jefferson, we cross paths a lot on the weekends and, and nights and meetings. That's what this work is all about. So I'm very clear on who I am. With regards to Black Lives Matter, uh, what has the mayor done right or wrong? Uh, how would you advise him? Well, I have advised him along the way. I've sent him many letters on what he should be doing. Okay. And, but what I think the mayor is, he's attempting to do, he's, um, he's trying to balance between um, what's right and what's just and what perception is and what reality is on the streets. And he's caught in the middle because when he goes left, then one of his city council people, they pull him back another way. Um, He doesn't have a unified voice on how to go forward with this. And that is so important because they're they're flip-flopping things that are going on on that city council. And it would be great to have him be a voice that is a voice of the commission. Not that we're we're all, you know, in, in one lockstep, but it would be nice to say, Portland City Council believes this, and this is how we're going to go forward. But 
at any given time, <laughs> he's going he's he's going to contrast with Commissioner Hardesty or U Daly or even Commissioner Fritz. But it, it looks like it's all over the place, and so then it looks like he's not really strong. Um, I, I just think that um, help is on the way, and um, he just needs some more help on that city council. You and I were in a meeting, I want to say maybe the second week into the protest. Uh, I'm going to thank you for attending that. It was called by a young black protester. Uh, Lou Frederick was also in that meeting. And there was a lot of, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of tension um, in that that interaction based on some of the frustrations he was feeling. I know, I felt him. Not being supported, yeah. Um, first, I want to thank you for that, you know, the, the way you handled that situation. Um, I want to ask you, what's the move in getting more people, the right people, listening to what's happening between protesters and the mayor of City Hall? Like, How do we get that dialogue really going? Well, what got me moving was when Dre said he couldn't get a meeting with the mayor. I texted the mayor on his personal cell phone and said, I got some folks that I want you to meet with that, that say they want you to hear their voice. Can you do that? And the mayor immediately said, yes, can you help to set that up? And um, Dre was happy. Um, See, I have a little Dre, okay? Mm -hmm. So I understand exactly who he is, but I was trying to direct him in a way that was gonna be positive, that would keep him within the line so that we didn't have to go and get him some bail money. Um, (laughs) And I didn't want him to do that because I wanted to, you know, really kind of put his energy and his excitement about being in this game. And Dre, Dre and his son, if you see the pictures of me uh, from there, that was Dre's son that was that was doing the music behind me in the picture. Gotcha. And um, Dre got me, look, look, he kept me safe. He got, he got security around me. He had, and when it was time for me to go, he had security that, that they had put together and they got me out of there safely without, you know, a bunch of foolishness. And so, you know, I got much love for him. And he was out there the previous week and he got shot in the head with a um, concussion grenade. Mm. And he actually thought he was going down. I was listening to his uh, Facebook Live and his wife was like, all right, baby, you, you're not dying. You're not dying. We just, just keep talking. Don't go to sleep. Just keep talking. Oh. Don't go to sleep. And my son played football and he went to University of Washington. And that's the first thing they tell you. He had a he had a concussion. He got sideswiped doing a kick return. And they tell you, don't go to sleep, because if you go to sleep, you may not wake back up. And I mean, she was talking to him. She was working with him. And Dre, two days later, he back out there again. And he was there over the weekend. So I, I appreciate they have a lot of commitment and dedication and we need to harness that. And, and put that in a way that, that it's going to be meaningful for the entire community. And um, I, I, I am going to be someone that I feel like they will be able to trust. Because if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to work on something, I'm going to do it. And, you know, you remember from the meeting, he, he didn't have much trust in, in the current city council. Correct. He did not. He really didn't. And for one of his issues to be safety and then had had that happened to him. Yeah, yeah. I was on a, a um, Zoom this morning with um, Anthony Blake. They call him uh, Brother Love. You may know who Brother Love is. He went to high school with yes. us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and over at Grant. Yeah, he did. 
and he's he was on my um, show this morning. He's, he talked about being hit. Um, I saw his show Saturday night late. It's about two o'clock one morning, and he was just like, "There's a spiciness in the air." You know, he he's giving you this color commentary. Uh, he said he was out there for 68 days. Um, but folks like him, we need to be talking to him. We need to be down on the ground with him. And I'm so excited that he's doing the 10,000 person march from King Elementary to Peninsula on Saturday. I'll be there at two o'clock. And he's trying to get more black voices who don't feel comfortable going downtown that they will march for police brutality to end here in the community. Um, and so I think it's gonna be fun. I think it's gonna be inspiring and it's gonna be engaging. And uh, I can't wait for Saturday. Let's talk about independent police review. You mentioned it in this interview. You have called for it. It, it is, as we record this, up for a vote today in the city council. It has been described as Joanne Hardesty's plan. I think it is also fair to say it's something that you called for some time ago. Explain yeah, I, the, you go ahead. Yeah, I called for it on, um, it was around June 5th or June 8th when I dropped my plan. And um, I sent it to all the city commissioners and I called the mayor personally and, and went point by point of what my plan was. And I also called Daryl Turner and I told him he probably is not gonna be happy with me um, and in fact, he said, I can, I can support three of these. He didn't support the, the, um, the qualified immunity, but um, he could work with, with the other three around the independent review, uh, reallocating the dollars and some of the things about the rubber bullets and, and the chokehold. I think it was the chokehold in there. He was like, we can work with some of these things. And so that was like, okay, cool. But we sent it to every commissioner and I was talking about having an independent review back in June. Commissioner Hardesty, to her credit, she's pushing one of the one of the uh, points in my plan. And I don't care if she got it from me or she just thought of it magically. That's okay with me. I just want it to be done. But I see uh, in the paper that the uh, police uh, union, they don't believe that that vote is possible or, or legal at this point. So they were talking about it yesterday. And so talk about either why it's important or what are some of the most important elements of it? Because there's some degree of civilian oversight now. The criticism, it's not sufficiently independent and it doesn't have enough teeth. How do you make sure it's truly independent and how do you make sure it actually is? You have to codify it. You have to codify it with with the teeth, because depending on which administration is in will depend on how strong it is or how weak it is. But if you put the teeth in the actual um, uh, charter, you will, you will keep it and it will be the same uh, until you change it again. So I think that um, this is the right move. Uh, the lawyers will have to figure out if it's legal or not, but I think it's important to have. Thank you so much, which is amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. And thanks so much for your previous service and your willingness to jump in again. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Ambush. Bye now. Thanks to Ed and Loretta for joining the local and a huge thanks to our production team. Editors Will Romy, Miranda Selinger, and Jonathan Covington-Brem. And writers Kate K, DJ Ambush, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchuk, Carly Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, writer Sherwood, and Sam Smargiasi. Big shout out to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. And I'm Jefferson Smith. 
thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.HealthData.org, The Washington Post, The Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, The Willamette Week, Pamela Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Ben Bulletin, Statesman Journal, Bike, Portland, Street Roots, KGW News Partner, Bridgeliner, and The Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving that five-star review. Pretty, 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 please. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday. X-Ray.